Miss Watson? Speaking. My name is Richard Sumner. Well, numerologically, that's very good. There are 13 letters in your name. You calculate rapidly. Up to 13, anyway. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 92 this time, which is back to Erica's choice. What are we talking about today? I've chosen Desk Set from 1957, directed by Walter Lang, with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Gig Young, Joan Blondell, Dina Merrill, Sue Randall, and Neva Patterson. A librarian and a methods engineer clash over the computerization of a TV network's research department. From the very first moment, we know this is a very mid-century modern movie. It's got the jaunty going uptown music, Mondrian-inspired patterns, and state-of-the-art technology everywhere. The credits do note that IBM participated in this. It's a significant early example of product placement, I think, and maybe the very first American film, at least, to deal seriously with the implications of the computer in the workplace and that fear of being replaced by automation. It is the technology that starts us out. The opening credits are computerized, in fact. And it's so odd to think about these stars that have been around for eons at this point. So it struck me as really good casting to provide some sort of implied history of these folks having weathered major changes. From vaudeville to sound to their own aging process. Now this big change that they are facing, the characters in the film, do you think that that was a contributing factor when it comes to the mixed response that this got? Is it maybe a little bit that people had seen enough of Tracy and Hepburn by then, and this aging process meant they were aging out of favor with moviegoers? Because it seems like by the time we get to the end of it, it's at least a somewhat successful PR campaign for IBM and assuaging people's fears. It ends with the very reassuring note that machines will always need people to make them operate optimally. It's not competition. Humans and machines are complementary. What I'm trying to say is, does this age as well as hackers? <laughs> Maybe better. Oh, gosh. <laughs> the other thing it makes me think... I'm sorry. <laughs> the other thing it makes me think is, what is it now that we are skeptical and afraid of in this regard? Or even if it's still the same. There was an article in The Guardian just in August that cited the statistic that 6 million workers are afraid they could be replaced by machines over the next decade. So this is still a relevant concern, ripped from today's headlines then and now. Those are some almighty questions you have given me to grapple with, so I'm going to do my best. You know, I may be in the minority on this, but I think that Desk Set has aged better than Hackers. I don't know how you feel about it. <laughs> if you're about to cast aspersions on the Fisher Stevens skateboard part, then you can just get out right now. Okay, I won't mention that at all. No, I'm kidding. I hate that movie. You made yeah, me watch that movie. I did, because my mother made me watch it. But all joking aside, I think that it is an adult story, and I think that those are going to weather the test of time a bit better than technology in the hands of youth. Again, I could be way off base here. I do think it's interesting to have this discussion about why age matters in this film, and I'm going to be returning to it multiple times. I think, in essence, the audience was given a bit of a bait-and-switch. If you look at the publicity materials for this, it's very much painted as a woman going after the man, trying to snag him, and that is the exact opposite of what takes place here. That reminds me of something interesting that I read that Spencer Tracy said about movie billing when it came to this stuff. When someone asked him one time, why are you always billed above Catherine Hepburn? 
his response was essentially, it's a movie, Chowderhead, not a lifeboat. And so if the studio had tried to present, look, this is an adult story where two people find each other at the right time in life, which is late middle age for both of them, I'm not sure that people would have been lining up to it. And it was also changed from the stage play upon which it's based. Oh, significantly, I think, right? Absolutely. But I also don't know that the studio was trying to court to that New York Broadway theater crowd necessarily. And then the second part of why I think it continues to age well is that that is a very real fear. You cited some of those statistics. It was the case then that people were seeing before their eyes jobs that they had been used to doing for decades completely disappear in the face of computerized technology. I've got some examples for you. Going back to the wartime period just before this, code breaking, flight simulations, moving on to almost the entirety of the farming industry, manufacturing, transportation, things like trains, buggies, carriages, elevators, all the way to replacing those so-called human computers that NASA had employed, and then the very commonplace manual clerical and mathematical work. This film in 1957 was just on that cusp, because the year before is when we saw the first keyboard input into a computer, just like we see in the film. And the dawn of the 60s saw the popularization of the large mainframe computers in offices. So if this was product placement by IBM, certainly our bosses were paying attention, because by the mid-1960s, they were firmly ensconced. Yeah, that's another thing that I read. The 60s were the real golden age of growth for the computer in the workplace, 27% increase from year to year to year throughout the 1960s. But enough of our wired podcasts. I did today just buy us a robot vacuum, so <laughs> you're welcome. That is not a joke. I am so excited. It's the first step that we're taking towards having the house of the future, as featured in the 1948 World's Fair. Okay, how about we get back to the film? Great plan. So first we see where our office is going to be, and that's Rockefeller Center, which is the home of NBC, but here it's the Federal Broadcasting Company. Even though, interestingly, this story is based on CBS. And into the building walks Spencer Tracy, and he's almost shielded from view with his fedora covering his entire face. It's a very classic, low-key Spencer Tracy entrance, and maybe a classic efficiency expert trick showing up early. Or I guess as he points out, methods engineer. Efficiency expert was obsolete even then. Now did you read his entrance the same way I did? Or was that meant to convey something else? In a scene a few minutes later, he forgets his tape measure. Or does he? Is this a clever excuse to return and evaluate things unexpectedly? Are we supposed to think he's that calculating? Or is he just the absent-minded genius? I guess I lean towards the latter reading of that. I don't think of him as a calculating person. I think he's uncomfortable when he's tasked to not reveal why he's essentially there. I think it's more about him not having to be accountable to anyone else but himself and focus so much on his work that he's just more in his head than anything else. Now, he's sent down to the Research and Reference Department to begin the project that we don't fully know what it is at this point. And here he encounters, before we meet Katherine Hepburn, three other incredibly capable women. And they span an age range here. I mentioned that I'm going to be talking about age throughout this. And especially for these women, it plays a big part in the story, in their fears, their hopes and dreams and the stakes for what this major technological change will mean to them. We've got Joan Blundell playing Peg, and she was about 51 at the time. Dina Merrill as Sylvia, she's in her early 30s. And Sue Randall is Ruthie, and she's the youngest in her very early 20s. Now, I love this office. It's a wonderful library with a loft. What else could you want? This is my kind of place. I would love to work here, too. Book smell... A spiral staircase in your office, lots of open space, smart people. Librarians probably love this movie, I would guess. You worked in a library, right? Does that contribute to your enjoyment of it, or is it a chicken-egg sort of thing? I think you're right about the chicken and the egg. I've worked in two libraries, actually. 
My very first job was at Ada Community Library in Boise, Idaho, and I worked for the Idaho State Law Library as well, both incredibly interesting places to be and totally different experiences. So since you've been in them professionally, and I've frequented them all my life, I don't think it's unfair to say that it's beyond stereotype that people generally think of this job as populated mostly by women. In one regard, it seems like I would think of it as kind of a badge of honor. We look to women as custodians of our culture. But there are a lot of complications within that about how seriously the culture at large takes or doesn't take that responsibility and how all that evolved. Specifically in America from the end of the Civil War on. Regardless, I would take this job any day. She would be a great boss, first of all. She's smart. She's unconventional. She's nurturing. Just look at the plant that she's kept alive indoors for all this time. That's Catherine Hepburn playing Bunny Watson. And check out her cool secret back door to the elevator. This office has everything. And like with other things, we are just on the cusp of the workplace seemingly losing any potential for personality. This film is actually specifically about that without even knowing it yet. But before we get too far afield, I want to circle back and see what you have to say about the women in the library system. Is it as prevalent as it seems that it's occupied almost exclusively by women? And if that was your experience, what do you attribute that to? That was definitely my experience. The head librarian at my community library was a woman, and so was our state law librarian. She was actually replaced by a man when she retired, and it was an odd experience for all of us. And then my coworkers were almost exclusively women as well, the people who worked behind the circulation desk, and then the pages and assistants like me. To me, even though these days it can require a master's of library science degree, it still seemed like a job within the traditional women's sphere. At that time, I think of those three primary jobs— Nurse, teacher, secretary. And this seems more closely aligned to the secretarial position than anything else. I certainly don't see that Bunny had the opportunity to become an executive, even though she's doing the work of one. I tend to actually think of the position as kind of a hybrid. I think of it as exactly in between secretary and teacher, as it was laid out then in 1957. Now, as Richard Sumner is in this office measuring not engaging with anyone to explain why he's there, being pretty cagey about it, we finally meet Bunny. And right away, I was so attracted by her lovely sense of humor as she's demonstrating how sharp she is. That sharpness doesn't feel like she's using it as a weapon, it's just part of who she is. It's funny how perfect she is for the role, actually, because as I'm doing research and looking at the history of librarians in America, she is exactly the kind of woman I'm thinking of. What, at the time, in the early 19th century, would have been called eccentric. She's very intelligent. New Englander. She has an air of elite status about her, whether that's actually achieved through having money and power via her family, or just achieved through her pursuit of education. If you could look up librarian in the dictionary in 1840, there would be a little oval photo of Catherine Hepburn in a high-necked collar with a little bitty frazzled hair just out of place. It would be perfect. And the film and the play are based on a real person. That was Agnes Law, and she was the founder of the research department at CBS. She sounds like she was also a great boss, extremely well-loved. And she and the folks who worked for her were reportedly delighted to be the basis for this fun new play. So guess how much they would have paid to eat lunch in the first floor of the CBS building back then? I'm saying full meal with all the sides and a drink, 85 cents. Close, one dollar. That must have been the holiday plate. Well, I didn't happen to note who the CEO of CBS was at the time, and whether or not he was equally thrilled to be portrayed in the film, but that's who we see next, Mr. Azai, who Spencer Tracy goes to meet. And in this exchange, one thing that the boss said really stuck out for me. You don't care whether you impress people or not, do you? To which my gut response is now and always is going to be, who cares about that? I guess I have the luxury now of not caring, another chicken-egg scenario perhaps, but it's been so long since I took any of those concerns into account, 
when I was doing anything that I don't even remember the last time. And I assume I would be that way no matter where, no matter when. 1957, 1987, 2018. But it's a different world then for most, if not all, of these people. Everyone except Spencer Tracy, I suppose. Do all of these characters have to care about things like that? And do you feel like you have to care about that now in 2018? I do have to care about it to a certain extent. My compensation is directly tied to whether I, we're not going to use the word impress, but what people think about me. It could be dressed up a different way, but that's essentially what it comes down to. Okay, well then do you feel like you have a lot fewer specific restrictions than the women in this film had? Or is it just apples and oranges? I feel like I'm starting to stare in the middle distance a little bit when I (laughs) contemplate that. That's a fascinating question. As always, yes and no. Classic Erica. It is. I mean, I have the ability to go much further than any of them could have. And yet, in general, I could still be asked, even though it's illegal, whether I'm married, whether I have kids, whether I'm planning to have kids, and all sorts of other questions that put me firmly within my gender. And that brings me to the relative positions of Bunny and Richard. I'm going to bring up age again. Catherine Hepburn was about 50 years old. Spencer Tracy was 57. I don't know about you, but I tend to think of their age difference being so much larger, but really it's not. It's only slightly more than you and I. I wonder a little bit if people often think of us the same way, if they think of our difference as being much more pronounced than it is, because I think I share that with Spencer Tracy in that we were both born old men. You look like you are 15 years old most of the time. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm talking about in my very soul. Ah, I see. Okay. Well, I guess we would have to ask people around us if it occurs to them that way. I would suspect probably not. Do you think they think I'm your kept man then? Your cabana boy? Probably. Yeah, they're thinking, what is that a lady doing with that handsome young charmer? Is this sweet bird of youth? (laughs) Deep deep dive there for you. But think about, for Bunny and the other women, what a lousy position they're in, which many people, including me, can relate to. They're not empowered to act against this thing that is looming over them. It's forces acting upon you. Richard essentially has the luxury of age. He's also an independent contractor, and I think that that's very important. Independent says it all. He can make his decisions, he can make his own choices, but they still have to act within a system. And the fear of unemployment is very real here. It's at this point that we introduce the other side of this story, the romance angle. We know that Bunny is involved with her boss, Mike Cutler, to some degree, she's hoping that he's going to ask her to this big dance. And Peg, Joan Blondell here, talks about why that's important. That you can basically turn around and the opportunity for a romance has passed you by. And coming from a woman of 50, I can understand that. I can feel that. Well, I don't know that the situation she's currently in is actually any better than that. Because her boss, Mike Cutler, played by Gig Young is appropriately thoughtless and awful for the third point on any romantic comedy triangle. She's been dating this dummy for seven years. And this, I guess, partially answers my question. Disappointingly, I am surprised and dismayed at how much she wants to impress this clown, just because of what you said. The lengths that she goes to and the things that she lets slide. I guess it is hard to stand up day after day after day to the message that the destiny of educated women is a one-way ticket to Spinsterville, basically. And his first interaction with her that we see is extremely unpleasant to me to watch. I know he's telling a joke, quote-unquote. Everybody knows you haven't got a brain in your head, he says to her. Which I guess is sarcasm. He doesn't mean it, necessarily, because he is exploiting her labor to advance his career, so he obviously knows she has plenty on the ball. So what does that mean it amounts to? It's a tactic to keep her docile, to not let her think more of herself than he thinks she should. We were talking about this earlier before we started recording, and I think I come down on a different side than you. I picture this relationship as extremely asexual. Affectionate, maybe, but as far as crossing the line into actual intimacy, 
I don't see it. I wouldn't let this idiot lay a finger on me. You don't think so, though, right? I don't, but interestingly, your opinion was shared by Gig Young's father-in-law, Robert Montgomery, who hated him. <laughs> Great. I do disagree. Okay, I'm going to keep beating the dead horse here. Gig Young was 43. So he's the reverse seven years. It's an older woman and a younger man. I guess probably what people see when they look at you and I. That's what I imagine. <laughs> and I do really like their physicality together in terms of it feeling real. I mean, he kisses her on the mouth in the office. I don't think that he's necessarily trying to keep her in her place as you describe, but in the place of, you're my piece on the side. You're the reliable bunny. You're always going to be here until I find something else. I don't think that she's trying to impress him with her knowledge because she's already done that. Everyone is already impressed by that. I think she's trying to push him over into the edge of, let's make this happen once and for all. And I do understand how that can be a process that feels like it has taken so much time. It's by inches that you suddenly are writing this person's reports. Well, her knowledge, her intellect is actually key to this movie for me. And I think a lot about what she thinks that's going to do for her and how she uses it. The difference between having a good memory and being smart, that's an idea that has always fascinated me. You can have a good memory and not be smart, but I don't think you can be truly intelligent without a good memory. Being intelligent requires recall. Being able to retain and access a large amount of data is important, but by itself that's just knowledge, not intelligence. When you have both, that is optimal. And she clearly has and can deploy both of those things. And significantly to the social context of the film, it's the major difference between the human worker and the machine in 1957, especially in this movie. Can you think critically about this information? It's why their jobs are safe. Plus, as librarians everywhere can confirm, smart is fucking sexy. Way sexier than punch cards and dot matrix readouts. I'm already getting super excited by you saying dot matrix printouts. <laughs> You know, we're doing this episode on an odd day. I had not a wonderful time today at work, and I work in customer support. The product I was supporting, and this was Giving Tuesday, was down. This was the online giving portion of the product going down on Giving Tuesday. So in between trying to figure out how to help people navigate through their world without this crucial piece of technology... I have to remember where the answers are to all of these other questions that they're asking. I have to be the human element. I have to figure out workarounds. I have to remember where all these things are and then interpret them for people. So I guess what I'm saying is I was Bunny Watson today. So I assume you identify somewhat with Katherine Hepburn and or her character in this. I do. I used to say to people, and it's true, that I do have a good memory, and that's what served me well when I was in school. And I remember some people picking up on that and thinking, oh, well, that explains everything. And maybe I was undercutting my own intelligence to seem somehow more relatable. But I do think, further to what you're saying, that that key piece is being able to make connections. It's great to remember dates or facts, but unless you understand how those things fit together and what they mean then it doesn't make any difference. And do you find Spencer Tracy as relatable as Katherine Hepburn? Less so for me. I think of him as more isolated than I think of myself. But I wonder if maybe that's why you might relate to him more than you might relate to Katherine Hepburn's character. Do you assume I do? Is that what you're saying here? I guess so, I do. I do like him because I think he's at ease wherever he goes and he's pleasant and helpful to everyone that he encounters here. I like how much he likes being in their office. I'd hang out there too all day if I was him. You don't see Cutler hanging around except to pick up his work that she's done. Even with all that though, Sumner is no nonsense. He's not fancy. I assume you don't think of him as asexual. Well, not asexual, but not necessarily robustly sexual either. I don't know. He tells that anecdote about measuring that girl in her stocking feet and then some. That is true. But he does like his isolation. You're right. That's one of the advantages of living alone, he says. Nobody tells you anything. 
Other things I like, he obviously never gets cold. He wants to have lunch on the rooftop. We obviously share probably somewhat of a volatile disposition, if you believe the stories about his actual real life. And he gets along, but he just seems to operate on the outside of all of this, of everything. I guess what I'm saying is, with my penchant for self-imposed penance, it's probably a good thing I'm not Catholic. Yeah, I really dodged that bullet, I guess. (laughs) But going back for just a second, I thought of something else that I think makes me align with Bunny Watson a little bit more, in the negative sense. I can understand how you can find yourself in this relationship with someone who is your possibly intellectual inferior because of the affection that they show you, the different way that they treat you. I'm not saying it's positive, but I get it. I do identify with her too, I must say. They're both outsiders. In fact, it's probably why I gravitate to both of them. I imagine that the lives of the characters, outside of the part that we see in the film, and I picture them a lot like us, may be considered a little eccentric or brusque in my case, perfectly satisfied being by themselves, at their happiest when they're being challenged or engaged, not buying this bullshit that thinking and fun are mutually exclusive. The difference between the two characters, though, it lies in that thing that we were talking about earlier, expectations and impressions. He has the advantage of not caring, and it feels like she is constantly being kept off balance by something. Her romantic life, her job may be in jeopardy, this setup, this time and place, the social baggage that goes along with all of it, it all throws their respective situations into sharp relief. He keeps her off balance almost right away, quizzing her basically about her training, where she came from, why is she suited for this role? And she talks about her parents were both teachers, she graduated Columbia, but she didn't have the money to keep putting herself through school and get her master's degree. And I think this woman should be on top of the world. He doesn't just quiz her about her training and her background. He also administers a personality questionnaire. Now, I'm absolutely sure that she is used to jousting, that she's used to fending off challenges to her intelligence. But is this like those other times? I'm going to disagree with you just a bit, because I think that she is at the top of her profession, at least. Her boss knows that she knows more than he does. She hasn't had to have a job interview, as she mentions, for a very long time. So I don't know that she has to explain herself constantly. But in her day-to-day encounters, as she's walking down the street, no one knows that she's the sharpest reference librarian in Manhattan. So surely she encounters some of that just as she goes about her daily business in the street. That could be true. I think her age has moved her maybe past that just a bit. Well, at any rate, even if she has had to endure that, I think that this may be the first time that she wants it to continue. And he's clearly met his match, his better even in some ways. I really enjoy this scene. This is probably where we mark the beginning of, these are our favorite scenes in the film. It's a great example of the difference it makes when good writers are writing specifically for the performers. They're bobbing and weaving, but it's not combative. It's not adversarial. They're each conducting little tests, determining how they complement one another, how they fill in each other's gaps. And I think we can relate. We still do that. Sometimes even in the course of this show, we'll make discoveries that way. And if I am him, what I take away from this, aside from my obvious attraction to her acuity and her humor, is that she thinks knowledge is vital. What's less clear to me a little bit is what she thinks that it will actually do for her. Will it save her? personally or professionally in some way, what good is all of this? At this moment in time for her, it's been enough. It's been everything. And the big question is obviously going to be, will that continue in the face of this looming technology? I do want to take a moment and mention the writer and director here. I noticed in this viewing how much the music is not intrusive ever, and that's absolutely lovely. Especially when you take into consideration that this was directed by Walter Lang, who was very at home in the what I call the underscoring period. The bulk of his work was already behind him at this point. He worked extensively through the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. He only made a few films after this. And his most known work was in the musical genre, the light comedy. He worked extensively with Betty Grable. One of his biggest hits was The King and I. 
And so it's lovely to see him here step out of the way. And that brings me to the writers, the Efrons. Henry and Phoebe Efron are probably at this point better known as the parents to their four daughters who all became writers as well, and that includes Nora Efron. They wrote many things together, I think most notably Carousel, and they altered the stage play quite a bit because they realized what they had, of course, in Tracy and Hepburn. Now your favorite actress ever, Shirley Booth, was in the play. We laugh, but she truly does have an amazing Broadway reputation. Notably, though, there was no Bunny Sumner romance in the play. That was a creation entirely of the Efron. So I can only assume that the play was 15 minutes long. It was actually much more about the insecurity in the workplace and the encroachment of technology. And man, did the Efrons make the right choice. I've seen it characterized as a situation comedy. It really was. You throw this wrench into the workplace and see what happens. Speaking from the theater standpoint... I would love to see a production of this because friends of mine who've worked on it, even very recently, the production was all about the incredible opportunity to make Emirac, our electronic brain. So I'd love to see that realized. All I know is that Cutler is still hanging around at the end of the play, and I don't want to see that whatsoever. Okay, good point. So that leads me to a question for you. This picnic scene, this quiz scene, I think it's my second favorite in the film. And it's an opportunity for Sumner to really demonstrate how magical he's starting to find Bunny. He calls her a rare tropical fish. So if we look at Cutler, and we look at Sumner, and then we look at ourselves, what do you think is more important for a lasting relationship? A basis in a physical attraction or a mental attraction? I'll take some of both, please. Actually, if it comes down to it, when technology continues its rapid march and we're nothing but heads in jars on top of gorillas, then it will come down to the intellect. But I do not want to sell the physical short. So let's call it 5149. You got it right. It was a trick question. <laughs> because they're both goldfish. By the way, that was one of the questions in the gifted program when I was in fifth grade. I don't know about you. In the fifth grade, they were asking you what you thought the most important component of a relationship was for entry into the gifted and talented program? No, it was you come in and Bob and Mary are lying on the floor and there's a pool of water next to them and oh, broken glass. A locked room mystery? Yeah, exactly. And the one about it turns out that the doctor is a woman and that throws everybody off. You remember that one? Oh, I remember. That was my big leap from knock-knock jokes to those kinds of books when I was probably, say, between seven and nine years old. Sounds like a hell of a time in your house. At this point, Peg is completely convinced that they're all going to be replaced with this electric brain. And Bunny thinks, eh, it really can't happen. Number one, just too many cross-references, these connections that you have to make, and that she essentially would match her memory against a machine any day. Right. That's the central non-romantic conflict. It's, they can't build a machine to do our job versus people are becoming obsolete in the face of technology. Nowadays, I carry research capabilities that surpass this department literally in my pocket. Almost everyone does. So what she's saying, at the time, isn't true, but technology did catch up to that. It does now afford us the opportunity and ability to be able to do exactly what she described. And I referenced that Guardian article. But you know what machines can't do? Gossip. There is a lot of back-channel scuttlebutt in this building. It's like an entire alternate information network. The whole building seems like a big family, and they look out for each other. And her staff is right. I don't know that a machine could tell her this unless Spencer Tracy puts the data in. She's too good for this crumb, Cutler. He's stringing her along, benefiting from her work. He's definitely moving up the ladder because of her. And he's not going to even take her to this big dance in this getaway weekend because he is headed out to Chicago for work. He leaves her alone with basically some flowers and her still-packed suitcase, all ready for her to head home alone for the weekend. And one of her colleagues, Smithers, gives her and Sumner a ride. We get to meet Smithers' mother-in-law and his family. Is this the equivalent, you think, of Christmas yet to come? Is that what we're looking at? 
Because if so, I would be waking up in a cold sweat and throwing money from my window to every urchin in town. I'm sorry. I can't hear you say that or hear anybody refer to A Christmas Carol without thinking of the several years on which I worked on a Broadway Christmas Carol during my theater days. Is that a one-man show? No, it's a three-person show. So in my head, all I can hear is a parody of a Jesus Christ Superstar song now. Oh, you're welcome. At any rate, they arrive at her apartment, and this is a classic romantic comedy setup. Thrown together due to circumstance, finally spending time in close quarters that isn't work-related. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess this is your favorite scene, is that right? Absolutely. Spencer Tracy is having so much fun here. It's tied for second for me with the personality questionnaire. There's still a scene that I like better than this one. But as far as this goes, I do enjoy it, and I like it because we're all grown-ups here. But do you think in 1957 this was a little bit forward, a little racy? Uh, I don't think so. We're a little early for the Dorstay and Rock Hudson comedies. But, I mean, they're well over 21 at this point. I know they actually did censor that scene somewhat. I'm not exactly sure what was left on the cutting room floor. So at some point, it was at least a little bit over the line. I'm guessing full frontal. What do you think? <laughs> no, not really. They're in bathrobes enjoying this dinner that they've made together. That, to me, is the most appealing part of the whole thing. I like their comfort. When you meet a kindred spirit, whether it's romantic, creative, or just a friendship, this happens this way, just as quickly. Awkwardness and standing on ceremony are completely unnecessary. And this seems like the first time that she's had sustained, relaxed fun in what would you guess, seven years? Speaking of seven years, guess who shows up? That crumb bum Mike Cutler shows up because he of course thinks he has every right to and breaks up this coziness, demanding an explanation, acting like a gorilla. I do like, though, that it gets even more fun at this point. Fun to watch. I've seen this movie many times at this point, and I like watching different characters each time that I watch it. There's so much fun work going on here. Well, his appearance just proves what Joan Blondell said earlier and what Hepburn knows in her heart already to be true, I think. But in addition to that, you're right. It gives Spencer Tracy an opportunity to get in a couple of great W.C. Fieldsian barbs under his breath. And it's just obvious that Cutler has no hope of keeping up with either one of them. And that, I think, lays bare why we root against him. He can never hope to keep up with Bunny, so his only way to be an equal is to hold her back in some way. To rein in her wit and her spirit. Someone boo this man. And then Catherine Hepburn also has a chance to be really, really funny here, too. This is my favorite, because after they've kicked out Mike Cutler, finally... And even Peg has shown up in the meantime. There's a great bit of improv work here. I'll leave it for everybody to watch, but it's the very end of the scene. And there's no way, because I share this quality, that you can fake the snorts that come out of Catherine Hepburn's face as she sees what Spencer Tracy is doing physically. Well, after all that, it's back to the office for the holiday party. And I like this office. Did I say that already? It is full of smart, horny librarians, and everyone is all revved up for this party. Between this and the party in the apartment, I'm surprised I didn't get pregnant. Because anything goes as long as you don't lock the doors. That's exactly right. I should mention this party is actually the inverse of the apartment. It's brimming over with goodwill and holiday cheer, not the cold, bitter sting of regret. Since this takes place at Christmas, do you think of this as a holiday film? Does it actually give you all the holiday feeling you want from a Christmas movie? I did, in part, pick this because of its holiday setting. But no, it doesn't really feel like a holiday film to me. It's a bit more incidental. And I guess there is that sting of regret because they're facing unemployment at the holidays. That's pretty depressing. Let me continue to bring you down for just okay. a second. Great. Because I do think of this almost as a bookend with the apartment, but in a really fluid way, kind of a back and forth. This is the party three years before the apartment would show us where Fran is going to end up, where the Edie Gourmet character is going to end up. It's all fun and games now. 
well, how about this? I'll double down on your bringing us down, and I'll talk about the one thing in the film that actually does not work for me, period. The one thing that loses me is that I just don't think Catherine Hepburn's drunk scene is cute. I'm never going to. It's the only thing I don't like because it's the cheapest and laziest device to show that she can also be undisciplined and freewheeling and not buttoned down. We can debate whether or not that's true to life, but when I see a capable and formidable person that cannot access their true feelings without alcohol to loosen them up first, it's just a little sad to me. I might feel for them slightly, but it's not because I find it adorable, it's because I find it somewhat pitiable. Hepburn and the Efrons are smarter than that, so it's just disappointing to some degree. Well, thanks for nothing, Debbie Downer. <laughs> just kidding. I don't really disagree with you. I don't enjoy drunk scenes either. What I do like, though, I'm about to bring us back up a bit, is how much fun Joan Blondell and Catherine Hepburn are having together. I think they brought out great things in each other. And I want to talk a bit here about Joan Blondell. I love this lady. This is the person I want to hang out with. Joan Blondell is what I think of as a trooper, that straight-up born-in-a-trunk kind of performer, starting out in vaudeville from an incredibly young age. And as with Walter Lang, she already had an immense career behind her, the difference being that she just kept on working and working and working. She did a ton of TV after this, kept working in film as well, including one of your favorites, uh, working on Opening Night with John Cassavetes. So when she talks about time passing by, I can feel it. She shows it. This is also a person whose romantic life was essentially centered earlier than this. She was divorced in 1950 and never married again, and I don't think had a particularly happy time of it as well. Thanks for bringing us back up. Wait for it. Okay. <laughs> her ex-husband Mike Todd reportedly held her by the ankles out of a hotel room window. What is this guy, Suge Knight? Sounds like it. Here's the biggest point in her favor. She hated June Allison, who was her ex-husband <laughs> Dick Powell's next wife. Anything that anyone does to make Dick Powell's life miserable is okay in my book. Exactly. And one of my favorite bits of physicality with the two of them together is they're scooting their chairs towards Richard. And then Bunny singing night and day while Richard plays the bongos. Fortunately, for me at least, they don't keep hitting that lazy note. In fact, it seems like it's completely forgotten a little bit later as the two of them are in the library stacks, a perfect hiding place, getting to know each other better. Whereas Cutler could never hope to keep up, it's obvious that Sumner can keep up with her without having to hold her back to do so. You just need someone that operates on your level, someone that gets as excited about the Bergman box as you do. In this anecdote that he tells about a former girlfriend, it's funny and it's illuminating. He's not puritanical, he's not as single-minded as you might think, and most importantly, he has an equal need for someone that can keep up with him, even if the movie doesn't make that as obvious. Sumner never married because that never clicked. And finally, we arrive at what is my favorite moment. He sees that person in her, and he gently declares his intentions. He takes her hand and he says, I'll bet you write wonderful letters. Deal, Smoothie. This is a done deal. I assumed also that you identify with him because he spent the war in Greenland, which sounds like <laughs> your favorite ideal thing. It sounds like me because I would probably ditch someone that wrote boring letters, that's for sure. I used to write letters a lot. I haven't in years, and it's a shame, I think. Maybe just I have less of a desire to communicate, and probably fewer people that I want to communicate those ideas to. But it's a bit of a lost art, I think. And speaking of letters, have you seen the documentary The Spencer Tracy Legacy? Or at least the part where she reads the letter that she wrote to him 24 years after he died? I haven't. Get your Kleenex out. He was right. She does write wonderful letters. Gosh, sorry. Before we move on, do you know about Elizabeth Taylor keeping the letter that Richard Burton wrote to her the night that he died? Keeping it in her bedside table forever? No, I haven't heard that story. Do you know what the text of it is? No, she has never made that public, and of course now she never will. Don't mention the children, Martha. It sounded essentially, though, oh god, it's going to make me tear up. He was asking to come home. Just a fluffy, light little holiday episode for you here, everybody. 
gosh, I think I can hear the string instruments tuning <laughs> up in the background. I'm going to steer us back a little bit towards something more joyful and talk about what the lesson is from this and all of the Tracy and Hepburn movies. I think it's basically chemistry cannot be denied and comic timing is an essential component of that. It's a really powerful thing when you meet someone that makes you feel like you're smiling inside and out, and it can be a huge pain in the ass to edit these episodes, but it is worth it every time I hit a spot where I make you laugh really hard. I can't help but think that was directed at me. <laughs> the pain in the ass part is definitely 80% of the things I have to cut out that you did. But be that as it may, I still stand by what I said. Both parts. And while I'm on a rant here, I hate to get all kids these days. No, I don't. <laughs> but this chemistry is something that almost every modern romantic comedy for the last 40 years just doesn't seem to have. This movie, I think, is an excellent example of why it used to work so much better, even in one like this that's not considered as one of their greatest. This movie takes the time and care to make even the secondary characters much more than just stock devices. And the principals have genuine charm, and in a lot of cases, an actual history together. William Powell and Carol Lombard and My Man Godfrey are my favorite example of this, how even though they'd been divorced three years, he wouldn't make the film without her, and it was the right thing to do. Now, I know it's not realistic to insist that every pair of romantic comedy leads either have been or currently actually are in love with each other, but at least they need to be able to make me believe it. It's not just a matter of ticking off as many demographic boxes as possible. And this is not just a young people can't pull this off thing. Gregory's Girl does it just fine. Why do you think so many of them now don't work compared to the classics? I think you've hit upon it at any period. It's acting and it's writing. At least today, I think there are just more egregious examples of this that these quote-unquote romantic comedies involve people I actively hate. <laughs> and they're written that way. Maybe it's ticking off those demographic boxes, have this person have this occupation and look like this. But they're not written with anything approaching likability, and then consequently they have no reason ostensibly to even like each other or be in the same room. How are you supposed to act your way around that? And so then I go back to my question of a relationship built on physical attraction and compatibility or mental attraction and compatibility. These kids today have a relationship built on lust instead. And so in this film, it seems incredibly startling that there's so little physical affection. Mike and Bunny are one thing, but Richard and Bunny have very little physical interaction. And yet that doesn't result in any lack of warmth or sense of humor or other demonstrations of affection. Yeah, actually, when I think about it, I am fine with this ratio. It shouldn't be easy to give you that once-in-a-lifetime feeling. It would cheapen the experience if you could just replicate that thunderbolt left and right. And it also serves to underscore how amazing it was that Tracy and Hepburn did that eight times on screen. This was the last romantic comedy they did, and they bring all of their experience to bear on it. Their maturity is what's most appealing. As you say, it's not just the flush of those first stirrings in your loins. They have a mutual regard for one another, and they are comfortable in their own skin. Do you think they're the greatest screen pair of all time? Gosh, that's really, really tough, too, because I can think of three others just off the top of my head that, were, that would rival them. For me, only William Powell and Myrna Loy even come close in terms of chemistry, longevity, and the sustained quality of their output. I looked at a lot of lists in preparation for this episode, and it's always alarming to me how few classics turn up. I just hate the idea that these films are becoming more and more forgotten. In any list that has Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone as one of the, quote, top ten most iconic screen couples, not just of the last ten years, but of all time... Unquote. It didn't actually say all that in that order, but you get the idea. It exposes itself as either completely ignorant of the history of film or just on a quest to get clicks from a specific age group. Maybe people aren't looking for maturity and mutual regard and any sort of depth or self-awareness. Maybe I expect too much. Or maybe people making lists are just chuckleheads. I'll go with that too. 
And speaking of chuckleheads... Good news, everyone. The ghost of Christmas dummy got a vice presidency in his mailbox. <laughs> I wanted this so badly right here to turn into that Columbo episode, Make Me a Perfect Murder, where Trish Vandeveer kills her lover, who is also her boss, who is also leaving her behind for a promotion that her work helped him secure. He deserves another man playing his bongos, if you know what I mean. I think I do. Before we can get rid of him completely, though, he's got a sort of proposal, a backhanded one. This vice presidency is going to take him to the West Coast, and he says, come along with me. This is what you've been waiting for. And she hesitates. I think she's even a little surprised here. She's not ready to give everything up on this half-assed proposal. It's not just that she's surprised, but ever since Sumner made his declaration for her when they were sitting in the stacks together, she has another consideration now. Player two has entered the game, as the kids say. We're at another crisis point, this time on the work front, because Miss Warriner arrives from Sumner's lab. She's going to be in charge of Emirac as the computer is known. It's coming in on Monday, so a very Merry Christmas to you. Right. We have our last big dramatic obstacle to overcome, our technological MacGuffin, basically. The Efrons really know their business. I think this gives us exactly what we need when we need it. She shows up, the computer is installed, it completely changes the physical layout of the office, and Miss Warner gives us a surrogate villain to focus on. We don't want to dislike the big boss because it seems like this massive corporation somehow functions more as a family, so he can't be all bad, right? We obviously don't want to dislike Spencer Tracy, so we need to be able to put our anxieties somewhere, and Miss Warner is perfect for that. She complains that everything is so dusty back there. Dust is part of the deal. It's indispensable. She's clearly not one of us. She can be our sacrificial offering in this showdown between technology and tradition. And then we get to still feel good about the fact that the answer is to combine them. That you can't stop progress. Side note, kind of, as collectors, I think we see this with home media quite a bit. I belong to a lot of forums and discussion groups, and I'm always amused when I see someone who is so enamored of a new technological advancement, streaming, 4K, etc., whatever it is, that they pin all their hopes on it and refuse to engage with the media equivalent of the stuffy old library. Someone embraced Betamax and 8-track tapes the same way once upon a time, Learn those lessons from formats past. Don't be a Miss Warner. Imarak is still not the star of this show, so we have some interesting tests here, each putting the other to the test, human versus machine, and demonstrating what human error can do as well. But eventually, it is the human element that thrives here. It's let's show them what people can do. I do really enjoy this section here where their team all comes together to demonstrate their skills and abilities. I talked earlier about the time spent on rounding out these secondary characters and how much we get to feel for them, get to know them. By default, though, this means that the leads interact relatively little for a romantic comedy, at least. It makes sense in the adaptation process because it's a relationship that was invented for the screenplay. They had to actually shoehorn this in here. But do you think they need to spend more time on them? Do you feel the lack of that? I'm struck by something that you said earlier that I think applies here. That when it happens, it can happen pretty quickly. Like can identify like. And you don't always need a lot more from there. You can take time to then get to know each other more. Even though unfortunately at this time, it's all leading towards marriage, we're told. But we know that they can still take their time and keep going, and we know that they're going to continue to discover more wonderful things about each other and more of what they like in each other. Yeah, we knew from the interview on the roof where this was going to go. I think it's just a testament to the charm of the performers and the skill of the writers that we still want to know the how of the getting there. The computer's still got one more trick up its sleeve, and this is a round of pink slips for absolutely Everyone in the building, including Mr. Azai, the head of the corporation, and even Sumner, who doesn't even work there. 
Now, this is happening at a time in American history where I think defining yourself by your work was much more common than it is now. It's just not something that people do anymore in the same way. People are more fluid with their work situation, either by design or by circumstance. I said that it's still relevant in terms of contemporary fears about automation, but can people relate the same way to leaving or losing a job that you have been at for such a long time? For example, I left Half Price Books recently after 11 years, and I'm 48 years old. I've only had six jobs in the last 30 years since I turned old enough to work, essentially. Even just five years behind me, can you identify with that sort of investing yourself in a job for that long? Definitely not in the same way, because I've probably <laughs> had twice as many jobs in that period of time. I don't know that a contemporary audience thinks of it that way in general, maybe even less than you. I can relate in a different sense, though, that sense of uncertainty, because I think nowadays we have to be able to be more flexible and adapt and be more fluid because there are different opportunities. And maybe even more so now, the very real idea that we're one paycheck away from complete disaster. So there's no built-in sense of security. The generation that came after us is feeling this very intensely. So personally, I always had a plan, and this was based on how I grew up. This was to have as many diverse skills as possible so that I will never be out of a job. And it's worked out for me. Well, it's good news again, everyone. Those fears were unfounded. The machines have all failed. The people win. The T-1000 has been defeated and melted into nothing. The power of the grapevine has triumphed over the power of the server network. It's like they say in the film, the human element entirely unpredictable. That's love, boing. I kid, but that's really what it's aiming for, right? At least a nuanced version of that. I'm not going to go back to my bookend of the apartment and where the T-1001 will come into play just a few years later. But I think my favorite detail, though, is at the very end when Richard tells her, you're the only thing I care about, but this will just take a second. I think that is relatable. They're not young anymore. This is a different time of life. And both things are true. And it is also at the very, very end where we finally do get some affection. It's the hug and the kiss. We haven't seen any of that before between the two of them. It is a slightly odd structural detail that the central will-they-won't-they they question is answered in what is basically the coda of the film. Dummy shows up again one last time and Sumner can't abide it. And so paying off on his garbage in, garbage out maxim, as well as this overarching idea that technology is no good without people to guide it, Sumner uses his machine to woo her. Why does it work? Why do you think she chooses to go with Sumner, ultimately? She can be herself with him? Is that it? I think that's absolutely it. I think it would have felt like settling to stay with Cutler. With, with Sumner, it feels like an affirmative choice. An equal, a partner, you just can't put a value on that, I speak from experience. And it makes me think about their real-life relationship, which seems to me to be an object lesson in never assume. No one but the two of them ever knew the deal. She didn't even know for sure. She said she was never sure how he felt about her. He never divorced his wife. Tracy and Hepburn were together for 27 years, but out of respect for his family, she didn't go to his funeral. It wasn't perfect, obviously. People were hurt. It was complicated. And yet we have all of this beautiful art and entertainment from that. That real-life relationship, that bleeding over in between art and actual living, does that have any bearing on how you perceive these movies? Basically, what I'm getting at is why make this our first Tracy Hepburn choice? This is probably the third or fourth best of their pairings. I don't think that that's really a criticism. It's like saying this is the third or fourth best bag of free money I just got. It's still a delight. But how does all of that play in? And did we cover why you chose it? And more specifically, why this one ahead of all the others? I think like most people, I probably buy into whatever the mythos has been created around their relationship. As you said, no one will ever know what really happened. But whatever I imagine happened fills in everything that I see here. 
It imbues it with more meaning, maybe than it deserves, but it makes it a richer experience. I know why I chose it now, and I'll get to that in just a second, but what is your favorite Tracy Hepburn pairing? Woman of the Year is way up there, but even though it's considered kind of lightweight and not top tier, it may be this one for me. And I think it just boils down to the fact that they are at their most lived in. And that's the thing I respond the most to at this point in my life. I might have chosen a different film earlier, but for now, where we are, this resonates for me the absolute most, I think. It's the same for me. Now, over the past couple of weeks, I've rewatched Woman of the Year, Pat and Mike, Adam's Rib, and this, just for fun, and also because they were on Filmstruck, which we know is going away, sadly. So now, re-exploring some of their filmography most of which I'd already seen multiple times before, even before these reviewings, gives me so much more appreciation for Desk Set. It is my time of life, and it's yours. It's the differences in their characters now, it's the different battle that they're fighting, to be more relevant, to move into another life stage with a partner this time. It's all about realizing that you found the exact right person that will let you be you who will appreciate you because of your intellect and find chemistry in it. It's also the improv touches that I've mentioned, the chemistry with Joan Blondell that we talked about, how stellar she is, those confessional sections, and then that obvious delight that Sumner is finding in needling Cutler constantly. I think it's also the funniest. I personally came to marriage relatively late in life, and I know the difference in what I have now versus what I had before. The whole me, being able to show all of me. I also come to appreciate the differences in the stories that they're telling, and more and more I appreciate how much Spencer Tracy just steps back and allows Katherine Hepburn to shine, and then everyone around him to shine. So this has now become my favorite of their pairings. But I sneakily snuck in my other favorite of theirs, maybe my second favorite, for my recommendation. And what is that? That's Adam's Rib from 1949, directed by George Cukor, with Tracy and Hepburn, along with Judy Holliday, Tom Yule, and David Wayne. Husband and wife work as opposing lawyers in a case involving a woman who shot her husband. This one I love because I think it's the most emotionally intimate and interesting. I also like her character the most, as there seem to be maybe not none, but fewer apologies that she offers, in contrast to something like Woman of the Year. Part of that is the time period. She doesn't have to concede to him, but she does have to be a partner. I also think it's really interesting to rewatch. Right now, my biggest issue is with the rule of law discussion that they have. Adam gets so angry with Amanda, feeling that she is making a mockery of the law, trying to rewrite it in court. He talks about that the law is the law, and we must follow it. If we think it's unjust, we must change it. Right now, Easy for you to say, the rest of us want to burn everything to the ground. So I think it's a good exercise to look at something from a specific time, grapple with the implications of it. How about your recommendation? My recommendation this time is Broadcast News from 1987, written, produced, and directed by James L. Brooks and starring Holly Hunter, Albert Brooks, and William Hurt. It's about a news producer who finds herself simultaneously attracted to and repelled by a shallow news anchor while dealing with the revelation that her best friend is also in love with her. And there are a lot of parallels with Desk Set. It's rooted in the inherent stresses of the workplace. It's a romantic triangle. The female lead is sharp, formidable, and beset on all sides by conflicting forces and impulses. Where it diverges, though, is how it's able to address these things. The workplace angle isn't aimed at assuaging fears, but exposing the inner workings of news gathering. It's as much an indictment of the process as desk set was meant to soothe. And the triangle is not between her and two worthy rival suitors. They are both massively flawed, one of them not even in the running, 
and this equally does and does not affect the choices that she makes. She's not as hamstrung by social expectations 30 years later, which makes a different but still satisfying ending possible. And what it has most in common with Desk Set and with all my favorite romantic comedies is that it's populated by smart characters, incisively written, and it gives us plenty of time and room to get to know them as more than one-dimensional figures. As a result, we are very invested in her final decision. We're given enough that we may have complicated feelings about it. And we get to laugh a whole bunch in the process. This actually may be, for me, the last of the great romantic comedies. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Adam's Rib and Broadcast News. And that brings us to the end of episode 92. First and foremost, we want to say thanks to Fred Osuna for becoming our newest Patreon supporter. We appreciate that very much. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes. We just put up our 40th one. And those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. We also wanted to say a special thanks to our friend Lars Nilsson at Austin Film Society for indulging us and letting us host an evening of BBC Ghost Stories to kick off the holiday season. Thanks to everyone who came to that, and to Richard Whitaker at the Austin Chronicle for doing such a nice write-up for us. If you would like to just get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. We are on Twitter, at lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Andy Wolverton, Travis Trudell, Jay McIntyre, Dice K. Beppu, Tim Lego, Jeff Duncanson, Michael Hill, Eric Reese, The Fine Gentleman at Fuds on Film, Doug McCambridge at Good Times Great Movies, The Front Porch Swingers, Terry and Liz at Happily Cinema Married, Grindhouse Dave, and Jonathan Way. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, and Spotify. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. Thank you to the nice person that left us another anonymous five-star rating on iTunes this week. And double thanks to Liz LaPointe for leaving us a rating and a very sweet review to go along with it. If you'd like to leave us a rating and review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. <laughs>